Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to the New Books and Popular Music podcast. I am your host, Richard Schur. In this podcast, I speak with Lorena Turner and discuss her new book, The Michael Jacksons. In our conversation, we explore the world of Michael Jackson representers and how his persona reveals the state of race and gender relations. It was a great conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Hello. Hi, Rich. How are you doing today? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm doing well. Well, um, you've written this great book. So why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got to write this book about Michael Jackson impersonators? Sure. Um, So I am trained as a, I was trained as a a fine art photographer. Um, And I knew pretty early on in, in my graduate education of fine artistry, um, that I wasn't really, that what really wasn't for me, but I really liked photography. I really liked the storytelling aspect of photography or possibilities, but really in a fine art context, um, that's not real. that's not really how photography is, is used or how people, how m- most people kind of use photography. So, um, so after I graduated from school, I was kind of always looking for, um, I started teaching and I started teaching fine art photography and I was looking for other ways to tell stories with images. And so I was not really conscious of, um, you know, how I was doing that specifically. I was very interested in kind of developing projects that had a visual component to them um, that also told stories and used text. So as, as the years went by, I, I did a number of different types of projects, um, somewhere I was taking pictures or somewhere I was using archival pictures or somewhere I was having people living in particular circumstances to take the pictures and then uh, putting them together to tell a, a particular type of story. Um, and then uh, maybe seven or eight years ago, um, I started, I got a really nice camera <laughs> and I started uh, taking taking pictures of uh, one particular project that has absolutely nothing to do with the Michael Jacksons. But I became more and more interested in um, the single images uh, capability of um, kind of, of telling a story when it was paired with text. And when I, I, when Michael Jackson died in 2009, um, because I live in Los Angeles, I had become familiar with the culture of representation or of impersonation that happens on Hollywood Boulevard. Um, and I, and, and I should say before he died, I was, I would go down there frequently and I would take pictures of not of the characters or the people who were the impersonators, but of the interactions between the people who were the impersonators and the people that the, who would come to see them. So the tourists. So so, so say a little bit about this culture of impersonation. I mean, I'm in the Midwest, so we don't have a culture or as much of a culture of impersonation. impersonation. So so what is that like? So, so on Hollywood Boulevard, um, so so when people come to Los Angeles as a, as a tourist or as tourists, um, there's, there's not for a very long time in Los Angeles. I mean, I've, I've lived here since the the late 1990s. There was not really a, you know, a, a center point where everyone would go and kind of experience that thing that's Los Angeles. Um, so the closest people would go to like Disneyland and then go to Universal Studios and they would go to these places that were kind of off shoots of what the movie experience is like, but there wasn't anything that was specifically about the city and kind of represented the city. So Hollywood Boulevard, there's a strip between it, like on, on just a couple of blocks, um, starting at Hollywood and Highland, which is where the, it's now called, I think the Dolby, the Dolby theater. It used to be called the Kodak theater. It's where the Oscars are held every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's there, uh, a number of people, like I'd say in the range of like between 10 and 30 on any given day who dress up and they go down just to walk on the sidewalk and P- and there's a large mall there now. Um, and tourists come and they 
walk up and down the street. Jimmy Kimmel um, has started taping his show across the street from this strip. It's where the the Walk of Fame is. So it's where the the stars are embedded in the sidewalk. And uh, the characters or the representers or impersonators um, kind of interact with people. And people, um, the the tourists or visitors come and they they want to have their picture taken with a particular character and they pay a little bit of money for that. And uh, and they, you know, th- their friend takes the picture, someone takes the picture who's on the sidewalk for them. And there's this really kind of interesting thing that happens. Like people, I think tourists feel as if they have really um, had some kind of unique experience that's specific to Los Angeles. And the representers are, many of them are actors or in some stage of kind of forming an acting career. Um, They feel like they are kind of exercising a a particular part of their craft. So who are some of the people who, so what are some of the impersonators you see? I mean, obviously you see Michael Jackson, who else is there? There's, um, there's, it's, you know, it's, there's um, on, on again on any given day. There's uh, a Marilyn Monroe. There's a Transformer characters. Okay. <laughs> so they're trademark characters. There could there can be like a Sesame Street characters like Elmo or Big Bird or Cookie Monster. Um, let me think. They don't. There aren't a lot of Disney characters there. Um, the Jack Sparrow. I guess he was he's a Disney character, mm-hmm. but not not like the Mickey Mouse kind of stable of characters. Um, that's that's kind of. It kind of runs in that gamut of characters from movies, so they can be actual people who are who the impersonators are impersonating, like Michael Jackson, like Marilyn Monroe, sometimes like Madonna, sometimes Elvis, those types of personalities, and then actual characters from movies where costumes are involved or a lot of makeup are involved, and all of these characters, um, they're they're what they're wearing are homemade. So the the people who are doing the representation, they uh, they make them all. There's a Spider Man. I've just just remembered him. Um, they make the they make their costume and uh, and they they wear it out. And it's uh, it's a part of what's fascinating to me is that or has been fascinating to me is that the the um the costumes are always in some state of degradation <laughs> like there's you know, like the spider-man costume he, it looks like he he never washes it so like the back panels are very very dirty and like the mat the the jack sparrow character like his wig can be very matted with like tangled things on one side no they they seem to not be aware of this as people as representers or as impersonators and so that kind of makes that interchange or exchange between them and the um the the visitors like that much more compelling because really what is going on there what do the what do the visitors or tourists think that they're seeing and what you know and clearly you realize that the impersonators they understand what their role is but sometimes they you know this, this kind of patina of dirt kind of helps to you know it it shifts them out of something that they're doing and into a new it shifts them into something a little different but but again they're you know have the mindset they're not totally aware of it all the time so is michael jackson one of the few african americans that are you see there that's a really good question um yes there i have seen he's Bit like people have been representing him there on Hollywood Boulevard for many many years. Um, recently, there's been a, a Chris Brown, someone who's been impersonating Chris Brown. Um, I can't say that I, I've I know they're Prince impersonators, but I've never seen one on the Boulevard. Um, and I'm yeah, I think that's really it. I can't think of any other African American people who are represented. So. How easy was it to get these people's trust so that you could um, start shooting photographs of them? Well, there. Um, so I, that's where I started was on Hollywood Boulevard, and then I, because I'm in based in New York, sometimes I photographed the people in New York, and then I went all over the country um, and found people in different ways. And it seemed like if I had to generalize, <laughs> there because most of them you know, they're performers and they want to be noticed and they want to have attention. And they, and a lot of the Michael Jackson people in particular are very interested in, you know, kind of doing what they say, what they, they call like spreading the love, the Michael Jackson love. Like that's really what 
part of their representation is about is spreading the word of Michael Jackson. I mean, there's some really interesting kind of religious overtones to how this culture has evolved or the subcultures evolved. How much of that spreading the love is sort of a response to a lot of the negative press he was getting really during the last portion of his life? Yeah, that's a great question. I, it's hard to say, I can't, I don't, wouldn't know how to quantify that exactly. Um, but I, I do, my, my gut feeling is that there, there is, there is a lot of that. I mean, they, the, the impersonation subculture of Michael Jackson really took off after he died. I mean, it certainly existed before that. And from the people I interviewed who were doing it before June of 2009, they, they would say that, you know, from about 2000, I don't know, one, 2002 until 2009, they were um, impersonating Michael Jackson professionally, but they were considered more of a joke and they didn't get a lot of calls, you know, because of the, the troubles that Michael Jackson was having in his, in his personal life and his professional life. And then that certainly shifted a lot after 2009. Um, it's, it, they don't, they don't, because they don't really talk about, they don't see Michael Jackson as uh, really someone who's guilty of what he was accused of. Um, I don't think that they necessarily would make the connection that the Michael Jackson love that they're trying to spread is connected to that. But someone from the outside who is kind of a passive, you know, myself, someone who's like a passive observer of Michael Jackson, it feels to me like there's a connection there. And uh, hopefully people will get the book because the pictures are really great, but maybe you can describe um, what are some of the uh, sort of the images of Michael Jackson that are really popular? Because Michael Jackson, you know, from when he was a little kid uh, before he passed away, I mean, that's a huge range of looks that he developed. So which, which, of the, which of those appearances are sort of the most popular with impersonators? Sure. They, so there's a, there are a couple of eras that the um, impersonators really like. So I, I, I want to maybe step away from calling them impersonators okay. um, and, and just call them representers because um, within the subculture, impersonators has kind of a negative connotation and they consider themselves kind of on the whole as tribute artists. That's a little bit more complicated to say. So we'll just kind of neutralize it by calling them representers, if you don't mind. That's fine. Okay. <laughs> um, so the representers, they, they, they kind of starting with the thriller era, uh, they, there's a lot of representation that goes on from that particular time period. And then also the bad era, which is the late 1980s, and then dangerous, which is the early 1990s. I think that's correct. Um, and then within that, they'll, they'll take like the hairstyle of like, you know, of maybe bad and they'll pair it with the outfit of Billie Jean, you know, and, uh, and then with some moves from like the dangerous era, like they'll mix all of them together. So what did you, what did you make of that? What do you think it meant that they were doing that? I my feeling about that is that they they're they're not necessarily interested in in authenticity. I mean, they're they're levels of authenticity in terms of their representation. Representation. They're not necessarily interested in, you know, representing Michael on the whole as he was when he performed, you know, Thriller, like in the video or any of the particular well-known public performances. That's not really what they're all about. They're really and and a lot of it. You know, I tried to find representatives who were working on lots of different levels. So people who were, you know, representing Michael in, you know, birthday parties in, in small neighborhoods and small towns in the South, um, to people who were working on the sidewalks of Times Square to Hollywood Boulevard to working in Las Vegas. Um, I tried to find people who were in all of these different levels because they all have different relationships to um, to Michael Jackson. They all have different relationships to the idea of race. And they also have different economic situations which allow them or do not allow them to develop their character in a particular way. So, I mean, certainly economics are a big part of it. And the, those who are working on kind of the lower levels where they may only be getting $125 or $75 a performance, they can't really create a character that's, you know, that kind of 
takes the hair, the thriller hair and the thriller jacket and the thriller pants and the socks. I can put all of that together. So just kind of by necessity, they have to kind of piece things together. But for those performers who are, say, working in Las Vegas, who have a lot of money and they have a costumer, you know, at their disposal, um, that costumer is the, the person who's dressing them is very concerned about you know, making sure that all of the pieces, the hair, the jacket, the pants, the shoes, the, even the makeup, like all of that is very representational of a particular music video or, or of a particularly well-known performance. Um, and so that, you know, that's what, that's someone else's concern, not the representer's concern. And then the representer's concern becomes more about the performance and just creating the illusion that Michael Jackson is performing in front of the audience who's coming to see them. So I don't know if I kind of meandered in my answer there. Oh, no, I think that was good. Well, well, you, you talk about, uh, in your book, you talk about quite a few different of, of these representers. Um, one story that I think really stuck out to me was the story of Jovan. So can you maybe tell his story? Sure. Um, Jovan is, is really a very, very interesting person. Um, and I think he, I, I feel very lucky that I, I found him and that he was very um, welcoming and encouraging of, of, uh, of me into his life and spending a lot of time with him, which I did when I was, tr- when I was doing the field research for the book. Um, because he's just, he just really, uh, well, I'll explain. He's really extremely interesting. He, Jovan is, came from Haiti and in what seems to be the the late eighties, he's very, kind of doesn't ever, um, specifically mention time because I think he wants to remain an illusion to, to the people around him. So, I, so he'd never really revealed his age to me, but it seems to me based on how he was describing Michael Jackson, that he must've come to the United States from Haiti in the late 1980s. And he was living in, I think it was Miami. And, uh, he was, he discovered, um, at the time that as an African-American living in the United States, that, that the definition of what it was to be black was, was negative and that he was experiencing, um, a, a lot of kind of oppression and, and kind of racial racist responses to, to him in different contexts. He saw Michael Jackson as someone who was a black man who did not have that that same type of was not was not held in place by um, by racial stereotypes, and Jovan happen, happens to look a lot like Michael Jackson naturally, uh, so he decided that he was going to represent Michael, and this was a way for him to um, kind of get over the stigma that he was feeling from uh, the people around him. Um, so he started, so that's when he started doing his, his representation of Michael Jackson. Um, and then he put it away for a while and he, he went to, to college. Um, I believe he went to USC and then he went to Harvard, um, and got a master's degree in, in theater there. Um, and he had, you know, has had, and still has, I believe high aspirations to uh, be a legitimate actor. He had numerous, different opportunities back in Los Angeles after graduate school, um, to, uh, to be in, in movies and none of them worked out. And so he found himself uh, after Michael Jackson died, he found himself down on the boulevard on Hollywood Boulevard, um, representing Michael. And he has a very unique way of, of doing Michael Jackson. That's very, it's somewhat different than, than, um, many of the other representers. He, He's what we'd call a lookalike. So his representation is primarily based on the fact that he naturally looks a lot like Michael Jackson. He's very interested in, in terms of costume, he does wear a wig. Um, and that's, that's just like a, it's just a curly wig. It doesn't, it doesn't really reference a particular time, but his hat and, and all the rest of his outfits, he's taken some style cues from Michael Jackson, but the actual outfits don't reference specifically a performance or an era in Michael Jackson's, um, professional life or in his, in his recording life. So say he'll go to the thrift store and he'll get like a black, a tight black women's kind of knit shirt and some black pants. And then he'll get like an armband of 
um, rhinestones and he'll put that on his bicep and then he'll get like a lace collar and put that over the top of the black, the tight black shirt. And he'll wear a couple of belts with it. Um, and he's got a, a really unique and interesting style approach, but again, it just, it's just to reference Michael Jackson. So he goes, so he spent for, for a number of years, um, three days a week on Hollywood Boulevard. I think it was Thursday, Friday and Sunday. And he would make um, anywhere from, I don't know, in the range of, I should say, four to $500 a day, which is really high. Most representers, be they Michael Jackson, be they Jack Sparrow or Elmo, don't make anywhere near that amount of money. So, uh, so he, he's, he's down there, he's on the boulevard interacting with people, um, and he tries to embody this kind of lightness that he feels Michael Jackson kind of exuded. So he, he doesn't, he interacts with people. He's very kind of kind. He doesn't talk very much. Um, he asks for a little bit of money. That's part of the, the Hollywood Boulevard interaction is that they're not allowed to charge for the pictures, but they do ask for tips and then if a person is not willing to give a tip, then they won't take have allowed to have their picture taken. Um, so, so he had a, a very kind way of doing that. And that's in part why he was able to make a lot of, a lot of money, a lot more money than some of the other people, um, on the boulevard. But he also is so very interesting because the color of his skin, he wears makeup. Um, his skin is, um, naturally, it's like a medium brown. I mean, it's not particularly light or particularly dark. He wears makeup to kind of unify the tone. But he is, of all of the representatives I met, and this is why he's so interesting, is that he, the response that people had to him, or a lot, a, that a lot of people, a number of people had to him on the boulevard, was based in the color of his skin. So he would say that, I, and I didn't see this specifically, so I'm going by you know, his, what he told me in interviews is that African-American people would come up to him and he said, they would deny me. That was his term. They would deny me and say, that's, you're not the real Michael Jackson. You, I'm going to go down the block to the lighter skin, Michael Jackson and be photographed with him and Caucasian people, or, you know, just non-African-American people really flocked to him because in their mind, you know, that's, that's who Michael Jackson was, whatever that kind of the they were seeing, you know, the clothes he was wearing. They were seeing the color of skin. They were seeing the whole package. It's hard to know. But that was really who his audience was. And Jovan, is, you know, he's a very intelligent man, a critical thinker, aware of his place as a black man in, in like, American culture. You know, a lot of that having to do with his history as being Haitian and coming here. Um, he started taking notes <laughs> and he started writing down these quotes that people would tell him about his skin color, about, you know, and how it relates to Michael Jackson or, um, and so he collected over 2000 quotes of people in response to him, which is pretty fascinating. They would, they would come up to him and they would say something and he would take out his Blackberry and just, <laughs> so he'd break character right there, you know, on Hollywood Boulevard and just type it into his Blackberry and then, you know, later he'd go home and he's compiled a large, uh, a very nice website of all of these, of all of these quotes um, that give real insight into people's perception of Michael Jackson and also his, the way that he's hearing race kind of filtered through Michael Jackson. So. Well, good, well, good. You know, one of the things that's, that's fascinating about looking at a lot of the, the pictures is that not all of the representers are African-American and to kind of give maybe an opposite extreme, um, maybe talk a little bit about Jen Emerson or Emerson. I'm not sure how her last name is pronounced. Sure. So, so Jen is, Jen is Caucasian and, um, she's, she's in her late thirties now. She's probably 39. She, uh, is from a small town. Um, sometimes she says it's Florence, South Carolina. Sometimes she says New Zion, South Carolina. I think New Zion is a smaller town than Florence. And so she may say Florence because it's larger and people will see it on the map, but that's where she came from. Um, that's where she grew up. It's where she, she got married and she has, she raised, she's raising her kids there. Uh, she has always had a great affection for Michael Jackson, um, as, as she describes it. And in, 
she she was she had a series. She went to to college and she studied graphic design at a community college and got her AA degree. And uh, and then after college, she uh, took on a various various jobs, like as a florist or as a. Um, she worked for a long time in the the Dupont factory, the local Dupont factory there. She was there for about ten years, and then uh, the factory left. Right. So she lost her job. Um, so she, she decided at that time that she was going to try representing Michael Jackson to make a living. It also happened to be a time when her marriage was breaking up. So she, um, she share, she co-parents with her ex-husband and her, her ex-husband, uh, does give her child support, but she is, uh, because the, the children are living with her. She, you can imagine is, is, um, really, you know, primarily responsible for their financial well-being and making sure they have everything they need. So that is how she makes a living is as Michael Jackson performing at parties and events and family reunions and just whatever, whatever she she'll be hired for. Um, She performs almost primarily. I cannot even say that I've, I've, I know of an exception that of her audiences are African-American. So um, and, I, and I found this to be, inc- and I do find this to be incredibly interesting. Um, I asked her, I spent a lot of time asking her when I first met her about that, about what that was like, how that felt, like how do people see you as Caucasian representing Michael Jackson and also being female and representing Michael Jackson. And she she has absolutely no... Um, no comments. She said she's never had an issue. No one's ever said anything to her about the fact that she's Caucasian representing Michael Jackson at all, you know, even within that particular cultural dynamic. Um, there's, she's, she's not heard anything. And, I, and she said that she's heard things because she's a woman, and that sometimes has made her more, more vulnerable in certain situations. Um, but absolutely nothing about, about, about race, which, which is pretty fascinating. So to kind of follow up on these two stories, what do you think, what did you, what did you learn about sort of uh, race and gender and sexuality and how uh, Michael Jackson is perceived today and how people understand him? So my original kind of question when I went into this, this project was how is, what is this thing called blackness and how is blackness represented? And, you know, that's a little bit of a strange territory for someone who is white and privileged and, you know, doesn't necessarily, you know, doesn't have a cultural reference point for what any of those things really mean, except from, from a very outside perspective. Um, and I was really looking at originally, I was really looking at people who were representing Michael Jackson, who were in their late teens through their, say, late 20s. And I was very interested in how, particularly in the area of Michael Jackson, there seemed to be this fluidity, like this fluidity of identification where, you know, Caucasian people are representing Michael Jackson, Black people are representing Michael Jackson, you know, um, Latino people are representing Michael Jackson. Like all, these, all of these different people from different racial and ethnic backgrounds are representing Michael Jackson. And I did a number of surveys, or surveyed a number of people, I should say, and when it came to that, when I asked them about race, it mattered absolutely nothing to them about, you know, that they were coming from a different background or the same background representing someone who is African-American. That had nothing to do with it for them. So um, then my research kind of evolved and over time, and I wasn't focused specifically on that group, that age group. And there were, you know, people a little bit older and people a little bit younger who were representing Michael and they were, you know, coming to Michael Jackson at different points in their lives when our cultural kind of, I wouldn't say understanding, but our cultural relationship with race has evolved so much and over such a short period of time that, you know, I found the people who were say above 30 had a different perspective on Michael Jackson because they were kind of following him and watching his development um, while the culture was at a different point, you know, and the people who were below 30 and even below, you know, below say 20 had their, their, their ideas of fluidity and racial identification of fluidity of race and racial identification, you know, 
were so much different because when they were, you know, when they were kind of growing up and coming of age, our culture had shifted and our perception of racial differences had shifted and it seemed not to really impact them at all. In terms of gender too, there, there really, it didn't see, it doesn't seem to matter to the representers uh, that, you know, Michael Jackson was kind of, you know, outwardly male <laughs> because they, they perceived him as, well, I would say they, they may not have been able to articulate this, but they, they just perceived that gender in the case of Michael Jackson was also something that was fluid. I mean, here's someone who was a single father to three kids, you know, which was, which is very unusual, um, particularly someone with such a high profile. Um, they, they, there just didn't seem to be too much concern about that. And, and, and it, you know, it just, it seemed that, and it seems like to everyone that Michael Jackson is, he has been able to transcend um, stereotypes of race, stereotypes of gender, and he's just become a human, (laughs) which is kind of a lovely place to be, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and not disconnected from all of, you know, our our kind of cultural perceptions. Um, And although this wasn't the direct focus of your study, I was really curious if you had a chance to speak with... um, the people who participated or consumed uh, these representations, what, what, what kinds of things were they saying about the representers? Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, I didn't talk to, I didn't talk to people who, uh, who were the recipients or in the audience for the representers. And, and, you know, maybe that's a failure of the study, but I, but I really felt like there was so much, there was so much material just in the representation itself and what that meant and the whys of it all. And then of course, and just in the observations of the interactions between the representers and the audience, you know, from the representative's perspective, that that just consumed all of my, all of my study time. So. Well, one of, I think this will probably betray my age a little bit. But my favorite Michael Jackson album was always Off the Wall, and um, from like 1979-ish, I think. Um, yeah. It's kind of like that disco era, uh, Michael Jackson. And um, was was that Michael Jackson represented very much among the representers, or am I just too old? <laughs> you know what? That is my favorite Michael Jackson album, too. I, and I just re-downloaded it maybe two weeks ago. As I heard, I heard one of the, the great singles off of it that I hadn't heard in a long time on the radio. And I went, that is such a great album. And I, and I should say, too, I'm not even, I mean, this, I liked Michael Jackson in the 80s, which, mm-hmm. is, which is when he kind of had the most, his most kind of dominant influence. I really liked Thriller a lot. But, um, but I, you know, f- fell away from him as, as someone that I would, I would listen to on a regular basis. So, right, so, I, so, so coming back to Thriller... I mean, sorry, coming back to Off the Wall was kind of a, an interesting thing. Um, no, no, there was only one person who represented Michael Jackson from the Off the Wall era. And he did so because he realized that nobody was doing that. <laughs> so he thought, he thought, he's like, here's a unique spin on, on, uh, you know, on, on my Michael Jackson. I can have him wear that great outfit that he wore with the, uh, with like black, with like these rhinestone um, vertical stripes on his shirt and on his pants. And he's, he's, that's what he's wearing. One of the co- um, costumes he's wearing in the book. Um, and he, he made it himself, of course. <laughs> Because it's not even there. There are Michael Jackson um, costume supply companies. Wow! Like where they? I mean, you you see them. They kind of emerge at at, at Halloween, mm-hmm. right? Because Halloween is now it's like so kind of closely entwined with Thriller, with the with the song and the music video for Thriller. So so I do see like on Amazon that you know it'll pop up like three weeks before Halloween, we sent on Amazon, like there will be a little kit that you can buy that has like a jacket and a little black fedora and a white glove, a single white glove. And then like these, these like, um, um, sequined kind of over socks that you can put over your socks, you know? (laughs) So that's like the low end version of the costumers. But in, in, in Asia, there are a number of different high end costumers, but they, they don't uh, make the off the wall, 
era clothes. Wow. So, so, so that actually leads to two, two very different questions. Um, mm-hmm. How you, you suggested there that this is really an international phenomena mm-hmm. of Michael Jackson representers. Do you have a, at all of a sense of what, what's going on in other countries? You know, I, it is it is an, absolutely an international phenomenon. The representation of Michael Jackson. I I know that there. I I didn't. I, I should answer. This is like a two part answer. Um, I didn't include anyone for outside of the United States in the book and in the study that I did, mainly because I was so so interested in Michael Jackson's connection to civil rights, mm-hmm. and um, and then you know the people who. Um, came to know Michael Jackson or kind of, you know, came to Michael Jackson at different points in his career. And Michael Jackson is, he is a, almost in some ways like quintessentially American. And his story is an incredible American story. And uh, so I really wanted there to be a, 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 a contextual connection between the people who are representing Michael Jackson, who, you know, is American, that they are living in the same type of context that Michael Jackson was living in. So that's one reason why I focus so, the, the study on people living in America. And also in terms of budgetary reasons, it, I, I could really only afford to visit the people in the United States, right? I couldn't go internationally, <laughs> but they, but other people outside of the United States found out that I was doing this, this, this project and were very eager, very, very eager to be a part of it. You know, can I come and photograph them and can I come and interview them? And, um, and it seems that in the UK, there are a couple of very, very high, high end, like in terms of the, the quality of the representation and, um, the way that their appearance is, just their facial appearance and their hair, very high-end uh, representers who live there. And, uh, and then there's, there's some in South America, and I know there are, uh, there are a few in, the, in Southeast Asia. Um, so I know that there are pockets of people. I'm sure it's much more. There, there are many more than, than I'm aware of, but again, I didn't seek them out, so, so I can't say. I don't have a good sense of like the density kind of yeah. per country or per continent. Um, but but I, I certainly know they exist, and and I and I, I it would be a great secondary study <laughs> to, to interact with those people because I'm sure that their, you know, their perspective on Michael Jackson is probably so very different than people living in the context of the United States. Um, yeah. So we uh, actually. So this may actually pick up a thread that we had started talking about earlier. You talked about. Um, in your last answer about how Michael Jackson is really sort of this um, sort of representative of sort of the civil rights America uh, or civil rights gains. Um, Can you maybe expand on that a little bit more about what you found about him as um, an example or an illustration of where we are with civil rights today? Sure. Um, So, so Michael Jackson started performing with the Jackson five you know, in the mid 1960s, and then um, got a record deal after a performance at the Apollo Theater in nineteen in, in like 1968, 1969. So, and then um, he and his brothers got the Jackson Five cartoon show, the television show. Did you ever see that? I Which, did. <laughs> <laughs> I had a feeling. Um, yeah, I, I did too. I think I came at I came at the end of that that run, but uh, they, that was incredibly influential. And one I, one of the things I found out in doing the research for Michael Jackson, as you know, on, on his kind of his 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 biography, was that. Um, the Jackson Five TV show, the look of the the characters was um, like it was almost like the taking the aesthetic that the Black Power movement had developed and kind of lightening it up a little bit and giving it to the the the, the Jackson Fives, right? Mm-hmm. To giving it to the brothers, um, and that's just I'm simplifying my yeah. that part of the story, but I think it works for for right now, um, and that really brought a lot of people outside of the black power movement. It brought them the symbols of the, the kind of representation that was kind of important and significant to the people within the black power movement. Um, and so it, it, so that kind of helped in some way it, it, it brought a, a mainstream audience to black power in a way that probably wouldn't have happened had the Jackson five not been there. Um, and then it also, um, 
it the, then all of that was kind of marketed, right? So there were all of these auxiliary products that were created to, for the, of Jackson Five, right? So they're like lunchboxes and thermoses and all of these little things that kind of made their ways into middle class homes. And so um, that also kind of st- like opened the way up for them to bring Michael outside of the Mike, outside of the Jackson Five and market him as a unique you know, as a, as a, as a single solo artist, um, because he was then, you know, he was, he was the, t- like the super talented one and people were familiar with him and developed a relationship with him and that, you know, kind of transitioning him into a solo artist and then doing, you know, he did a couple of albums and then there was off the wall and then there was thriller like that, that transition helped for, thriller to be very, very mainstream. And it also, um, you know, he's widely known as the first black artist on MTV, um, which is something that seems so strange, (laughs) so strange now and so antiquated at the, at the moment at our current, our current moment. Um, uh, but he was, but that was very, very, very significant, you know, at the time. Um, and, and, uh, I'm trying to think of what, how else I can, what else I can add to that, to that answer. Well, where, did, um, where do you think Michael Jackson sort of ended up by kind of the late eighties, early nineties? Um, Cause at a certain point, um, other forms of black music probably were more connected with sort of the black community than what right. he was doing. Right. So I can't, I'm, I'm not, a, I'm not, a, I'm not particularly connected to his, uh, to the, his, the, you know, the body of his work from a critical perspective and how that relates to the culture and, and like what was happening within the culture at the time. Um, you know, I'm mainly I was looking at Michael Jackson's work and how the representers were interpreting that work, mm-hmm. um, it, like in the later parts. I mean, up, up until kind of how I was, how I structured the book or how I was thinking about the book was to take I mean, Thriller, the album of Thriller was so incredibly influential and brought, you know, in some ways, I, but like black music was such an important part of our popular culture landscape and our popular music landscape. But it really, that album just really kind of, you know, allowed for so many more African-American artists to perform and to be taken kind of seriously as artists and not kind of on the fringes or not, you know, wrapped up in this idea of black musician, yeah. I think. Um, but I don't, but after Thriller, like it, that, because he was then kind of had a lot of visibility and there was a lot of, you know, mainstream attention, it, I, I'm a little bit, I'm actually very disconnected with how that, um, kind of influenced and is connected to other, other artists. So I can't really answer your question. That's all right. Well, the, the representers, were they, are they, how interested were they in sort of the full range of Michael Jackson history, or were they more interested kind of in the performance aspects of how to perform it rather than being sort of experts in his discography or something like that? There, there, there's a little bit of both. I mean, you definitely would find, I definitely found some performers who were extremely knowledgeable about his discography, discography. And also not just that, but, you know, again, as I, as I mentioned before, every, performance that Michael Jackson, every public performance or every concert performance that had a large audience or was designed for a large audience was a part, became a part of, or has become a part of the repertoire of almost every representer. So, you know, some, some of them will take, will look at the, um, the 25th anniversary of Motown, uh, performance, which was 1982 or 1983. (laughs) 1981. It's in that range. Sorry, I don't remember exactly. And that was the first time he did the moonwalk. Like that's so important, right? And then there was in the in the 1990s there was an HBO um, performance, a um, a concert performance that you know these people, many of them were very young at the time, and they saw that, and that was that was the thing that was kind of that was extremely influential. And then that allowed them to go back and to look at all of these other little performances. And, um, and so there's, so amongst some of them, there is an, a, an incredible knowledge of the eras and performances and, um, an awareness of bringing, you know, 
particular aspects of one performance, you know, particular performance into their own representation. And then some of them are just not interested in that at all. You know, some of them are very much more interested in just the entity of Michael Jackson, say like Javon, for instance, he's not, he does perform, he can perform as Michael Jackson, but that's not really where, what he emphasizes. He emphasizes the look of Michael Jackson. He tries to embody the spirit of Michael Jackson. And so that's, that's kind of where, that's as far as he needs to look for his representation. Um, One thing that I kept on thinking about as I was reading your book was what, how should I respond if I were to encounter some representatives? Like what do they want from an audience? That is a great question. I think that what they want is what they've gotten used to, you know, from, from the performance. So, so I think over time, you know, again, if you keep in mind that, you know, a high majority of the performers that who I interviewed and who I, I photographed didn't start doing this until after Michael Jackson died. Right. So after 2009. So, um, there is was was a lot of kind of collective affection for Michael Jackson that emerged upon his death. And and I have to say to kind of backtrack, and I, if I get off track here, Rich, and I forget your question, please guide me back to it. But um, that was one of the reasons why I was why I did this book to begin with was after when he died, I was in New York City and I went to Harlem and I, I, I can't remember what the, like why I decided to go there. I think maybe I saw on television that a lot of people were going there and I really love the spectacle. Like I love to watch people like I love to watch people who are responding to something, you know, and, and it unites all of those people. I love that. So, um, so I went to Harlem and I saw like this, this incredible outpouring of emotion And it was as if the last, you know, 15 to 20 years of Michael Jackson's life, where he was so controversial and particularly amongst African-American, his African-American kind of audience, that was all gone. And there were just people singing and, you know, brought their Michael Jackson dolls and were standing under the Apollo Theater marquee. And they were, you know, everyone was together and they were singing as a group. And, you know, of course, things like race and ethnicity didn't matter. Gender didn't matter. Nothing mattered. All that mattered was this moment of remembering Michael Jackson. And there was, you know, there, there was certainly sadness, but there was more of like this memory of how positive and how happy people were to have experienced his music. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, and, and that was incredibly moving to me um, that, that that could that Michael Jackson could bring people together that way, and I and I returned a number of times to see that, to see that you know, like a number of different days I returned and I saw that same thing repeated over and over again. I mean that's a sustained period of time where people are, you know, coming together over one person. Um, and now see I've forgotten your question, but I think you answered it because I think what I, what I really liked about what what you said is is that it seems like for maybe for certainly for the audience but maybe even for the performers there's something just very sort of warm and remembering sort of the best of Michael Jackson right. and and the fluidity of identity that he had and he allows us to have i think is very valuable so i think maybe you did kind of get at sort of what audiences and what performers or representers are trying to get out of this, out of this moment or this exchange. Right. That's that. And that's, yes, I think so. And I think the, the, I mean, I did, I do think I answered part of it, but what I wanted to say is that I think what an audience, what a performer really wants from an audience is they're really looking for, um, they're really looking for that affection. They're looking for, um, that they're, they're looking to receive the love that Michael Jackson himself would have received. So, and I think they've, they've grown accustomed to that interaction. Um, and so that seems to be an, a natural thing. I think it would be very surprising to them if they didn't get that, you know, at the end of a performance or a, a, a presentation. I think that that's, that's really what they're looking for. And I think they're looking for it to, in a cup for a couple of different reasons. I think they're looking for that so that it affirms their choice to be a, a, a Michael Jackson representer. And it also, 
Um, so that's, it's validating their own personal choice. And it's also validating the, the place of Michael Jackson within, you know, the culture. Like, like, yes, you have made a good choice to be, you know, to represent Michael Jackson, but also Michael Jackson is definitely worthy of, <laughs> of the fact that you're spending all, you know, that of your representation, if that makes sense. Yeah. Well, we have taken uh, quite a bit of your time today, um, but before we go, I wanted to, was wondering what you're working on now. Oh, well, that's very nice of you. Um, I am, uh, I'm working on doing the publicity for this book. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm also, uh, I'm, uh, since I, I'm trying to bridge these two areas of photography and, um, social science research, um, and trying to develop projects that, I mean, I, now my, my evolution as a, as a photographer, and I guess I don't, I mean, I would loosely call myself an artist is, uh, has been one where I now have, um, been able to to recognize and to develop projects that uh, that are very much unite still images with text in different contexts. So um, so uh, so I just I'm I'm kind of in the middle of doing a project in Rwanda about um, that's about post conflict communication between the generation that went through the 1994 genocide and the generation of people born after the genocide. So I've been twice and worked with a colleague of mine um, who is a communication scholar. And uh, we, we developed, we've done like one, um, one part of that study and we'll, we're, we're trying to get grants to go back um, next year and do kind of a follow-up to that. Um, and there's, there's, I'm the, the, you know, I'm taking the photographs for that and helping to, um, construct the interviews. Um, and then she's, my colleague is implementing the interviews and then analyzing, analyzing the, analyzing the interviews and then, um, writing about that. We just had a show of that at the United Nations actually, um, to, to correspond with the, the 20th anniversary of the 1994 genocide. So, so there's, there's that. And then also because I'm, I live in Los Angeles and New York city. Um, and I have a good friend who I've known for a very long time, who's a paparazzo in Los Angeles. And, uh, and so because his work is about photography and it's about kind of its connection to popular culture and, and representation and just um, I'm, I'm, can, I'm figuring out a way to do a project that allows me to unite my own photographs with, uh, with some type of contextual research information um, about uh, the paparazzi kind of culture and how that operates well, those in both sound, New York and LA. But those sound like some excellent projects. Uh, thank you for talking with us today. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Lorena Turner tell about her new book, The Michael Jacksons. It will be released on Michael Jackson's birthday on August 22nd. My name is Richard Schur. Thank you for listening to this New Books and Popular Music podcast.